Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, you can grab a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 987. While you're finding your place in our house, in our family, uh, we have recently entered the challenging stage of parenting uh, where we're working with our kids through the topic of death. Uh, Our kids, at least a couple of them, have come to the point where uh, they don't just understand in theory but they're, they're actually beginning to process the reality of the fact that plants die and that pets can die and that people die and that we really don't like that, that it hurts when we, re- we lose a relationship uh, that, that we love. And of course, while it's difficult for our kids, the fact is that being an adult doesn't necessarily make it much easier. And so typically, in, in modern America at least, Uh, We do everything that we can to avoid thinking about death, whether it is distracting ourselves with technology or using beauty products and and medical procedures to uh, make the the effects of aging reverse so that we don't have to to notice that happening. Some people refuse to go to the doctor, uh, not because they're against doctors, so to speak, but because deep down they're just really afraid of being told that something's wrong. That, that might be, you know, big, big picture kind of thing. And on the one hand, our aversion to death is completely understandable because death is not a particularly pleasant thing to think about, right? Unless you're, like, really, really odd or, or something like that. Um, but like so many other things, ignoring it doesn't make it go away. Uh, it simply leaves us unprepared to deal with it. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at some of the hopeful realities about the future return of Jesus. And as we do that, we're going to see how, how the resurrection provides comfort and hope for believers in the face of death. And so we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 13. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so as we pick back up with verse 13, Paul moves on to a new topic regarding what happens to believers who die before Jesus returns. And so he begins by writing, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And when he refers to those who are asleep, uh, Paul's using common terminology, common metaphor, uh, the imagery of sleep to refer to death. And the fact that he is concerned that the Thessalonians are uninformed about this issue uh, indicates that he is once again responding to their situation. Either this is, has been brought on by a question that they have sent to him through Timothy, Or perhaps it's simply a a part of Timothy's report about them, that Timothy noted that this issue was going on with them. 
And we know from earlier in the letter that the Thessalonians understood that Jesus is coming back at some point to establish uh, his reign, his kingdom for eternity. But apparently this was a subject that Paul didn't have a chance to cover as thoroughly as he would have liked to while he was with them the first time. And so now the Thessalonians need to know more. And while we don't know specifically what the issue was, it appears by what we can see in this passage that the Thessalonians were very concerned about what happened to believers if they died before Jesus came back. And so it's likely that at some point after Paul left, one or more of the members of the church there had passed away, and that brought this topic to the forefront. Now in the second half of verse 13, we see why Paul wants the Thessalonians to have a clear understanding about this issue. And he says it's so that they may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And as I was reading and studying this week, I was struck by the fact that Paul had to explain this to them, because so often we simply take this for granted, right? We are, we are blessed in the fact that we have inherited an understanding, both in the church and even in society as a whole, uh, that is oftentimes, not always by any means, but oftentimes informed at least to some extent by what the Bible says about the realities of, of life after death, right? And so we just have always kind of had an understanding of, of how this works, but the Thessalonians didn't have that. The Thessalonians didn't have this. The, the, uh, the common understanding in the ancient world was that, was that life stopped at death. That, that this physical life was all there was, and then after that, uh, that was it. And so there were, there were some exceptions to this among some of the Greek philosophers. But in terms of your everyday average people, the, the common understanding was that this life was all there was. And so because of that, the finality of death was a cause of tremendous, inconsolable grief. Because that was just it. And there was no hope for the future. And so these Thessalonians have come to faith in Jesus out of that background. And while they understand, Paul's told them enough to know that Jesus is coming back at some point, but, but there were still all kinds of ways that they could be confused or concerned about what it meant if someone died before that happened. So was physical death possibly a judgment against Christians by, by God for some kind of sin? Or would people who died before Jesus came back, would they miss out perhaps on some of the benefits that Jesus brought when he came? How, how does this all work? Well, in verse 14, Paul explains why believers can have hope even as they grieve the death of their brothers and sisters in Christ. He writes, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. All right, and so our hope begins with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All right, we know that Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. He paid the penalty that we deserve to pay for our sin for us so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God by placing our faith in him. But we also know that Jesus rose again on the third day, which proved that he was who he said he was. And it demonstrated that God had accepted his sacrifice for sin. But here Paul says that it also serves as a pattern for God's people that shows that physical death is not the end. 
Just as Jesus was raised back to life, our final destiny is to experience resurrection as well. Then secondly, when Paul writes at the end of verse 14 that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, this implies that believers who have died are with him even now. And so even before the resurrection, Christians who die go to be with the Lord in what we typically refer to as the intermediate state. Now, we don't have all of the, the details about what that's like, but, but Paul wrote to the Corinthians that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Right? And so we, we understand, again, that, uh, that Jesus on the cross, as he forgave uh, the thief that was on his, uh, his side, said to him that today you will be with me in paradise. And so uh, the, the, as soon as believers die... They go to be with the Lord in heaven in some sense. And so we don't know what all the details of what that's like. But Paul emphasized in his letters to the Philippians that 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 is far better than continuing to live here on the earth. And so Paul's point is that even before the resurrection, we do not have to worry about brothers and sisters in Christ who pass on. The reality is that they are just fine. In fact, they are better off than we are, in fact, because they are with the Lord. And so as we, we take all of this into consideration, as Paul addresses the situation, I think it's important for us to see and to understand that he is not telling us not to grieve over death. Right? He doesn't say that he's writing this so that we won't grieve when, when we lose a fellow believer in Christ. Right? The truth is that it's completely appropriate for us to grieve when someone we love dies. Death is a a jarring reality. In fact, it is a violation of God's original design at creation. We we were not made to die. And so there's something deep inside of us that rightly responds to death for the horror that it is. Things are not supposed to be this way, and we intuitively understand that. So losing someone we love hurts. In some cases, it can even be traumatic. And so it's completely appropriate for us to grieve. And when we talk about this, I always think about Jesus himself. In John chapter 11, we read the story about Lazarus. And as the story goes, Lazarus is a close friend of Jesus. And in the context of of the story, he ultimately uh, gets sick and dies. And as you continue reading the story, what you find is is in the context, Jesus uh, goes to his home where he finds Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, who are are grieving over the loss of their brother. And and in uh, the story, what we find as you read through it is that Jesus knows that he is about to bring Lazarus back to life. He has gone there for that purpose, to raise Lazarus back to life. And yet... He is still so moved by the situation that John tells us in in what is famously the most or the shortest verse in the Bible that Jesus wept. And in spite of the circumstances, he knows he's about to raise Lazarus back to life. And yet Jesus is so moved by the situation that he weeps along with Mary and Martha. And I just think that that uh, if Jesus grieved at death, even in those circumstances, then it's perfectly okay for us to do the same. Paul's concern here is not that we don't grieve in the face of death, but as he says, that we don't grieve as others do who have no hope. 
And what we see is that the gospel changes everything. The gospel gives us a hope that cannot be shaken even by death. So as, as I've taken part in funerals over the years, I've had more than one funeral director tell me, just in private conversation, that there is a distinct difference between funerals where, where the individual and the family and, and close friends are believers and funerals where they are not. They're both very sad in their own ways, and yet there is a noticeable hope that anchors those who follow Jesus that is not there for those who don't. And that hope, uh, that confidence in the face of death serves as a testimony to the world about the power of the gospel. How do you explain this confidence in the face of death? And so you're from a a different perspective in areas of the world where Christians are persecuted. One of the factors that often leads persecutors to faith themselves is the fact that Christians don't flinch in the face of death. Here, Here you have people who are willing to die for their faith. They can take losing family members and friends who are persecuted alongside them. They can bear this because they have a confidence that death is not the end which is something that the persecutors don't have any answer for. Because of Jesus, we have hope that this life is not the end. And starting in verse 15, Paul is going to explain how the second coming of Jesus will work out in more detail. And so we'll pick up again, beginning in verse 15. He writes, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So picking up again in verse 15, Paul explains more of the details surrounding Jesus' return. And as he does, he writes that what he is about to say comes from a word from the Lord. So much of what we find here in the rest of the passage mirrors what Jesus himself taught the disciples in Matthew chapter 24. But it's also quite possible that Paul received a direct message from the Lord about the details that he gives here. But but either way, we are meant to understand that this is for certain. That that God has declared, he has decided uh, that this this is how things are going to happen. And Paul starts by revealing that believers who are alive at the time of Christ's return will not precede those who have passed on. And that the, the word talking about precede means that, that Christians who are alive at that time will not be at the head of the line, so to speak. They will not be privileged or, or have any advantage over those who have died. And he'll come back around to that in just a few moments. But first, Paul explains that when the time comes, the Lord will descend from heaven, and this moment will be accompanied with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And so in other words, everybody on earth is going to be very much aware of what is going on. 
Now, the the cry of command is is referring to God's authoritative, you might even say effectual command. It's a command that uh, produces or causes the very thing that it calls for. And so we may think of God commanding at creation, let there be light. And that command causes light to exist. Or as I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus calling Lazarus to come forth out of the grave. And Lazarus rising back to life. When Jesus returns, there's going to be a cry of command that sets everything else in motion. Secondly, Paul says that there will be the voice of an archangel. Now, from what we know which isn't as much as we would like to know, uh, archangels appear to be leaders of the angelic armies of heaven. And so the Bible names Michael as an archangel, uh, but Jewish tradition identified other archangels as well. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. We don't know. Uh, But when Jesus returns, one of the archangels will signal for the angelic army to advance, much like a general calling his troops to charge. And finally, there will be the sound of the trumpet of God. So we have to remember that in the ancient world, trumpets were not musical instruments in the way that they are today. Trumpets had a, a distinct purpose. Uh, they served to communicate in military contexts and to call people to attention and to announce the presence of royalty. And so when Jesus comes back, the trumpet of God is going to blast, announcing his return and directing his army to subdue his enemies, and to call the dead to rise back to life. Now, from this point, Paul says that at the end of verse 16, that the dead in Christ will rise first. And so far from from missing out or being disadvantaged in any way, believers who have died before Jesus returns will actually be privileged as the first ones to see the Lord when he returns. And from there, Paul says that believers who are alive at the time will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord. And and that word meet gives us the impression of a a welcoming committee of sorts. And so in the Roman Empire, if the emperor or a foreign dignitary visited a city, the local officials of that city would go out to meet that individual and to escort them back into the city as a way of demonstrating honor. And in the same way, when Jesus returns, all of his people are going to meet him in the air and escort him down with a grand procession, a parade, you might even consider it. And from that point on, Paul says at the end of verse 17, and so we will always be with the Lord. Happily ever after can't quite cut it. There is a, a glory and an eternal bliss that awaits God's people that simply cannot be described. It can't even be imagined. And that is is the future for all of those who are in Christ. And so in light of this truth, Paul tells the Thessalonians in verse 18 to encourage one another with these words. And the word encourage also carries connotations of comfort. And so whatever the exact nature of the situation in Corinth was, Paul expected the Thessalonians to, to minister to one another, to comfort and encourage and remind one another about the hope that we have for the future. And so we're reminded here once again that the Christian life is a community project. Right? We're not meant to do the Christian life alone. God gave us the church because we need one another. 
Right? Christians need other believers. We're responsible for other believers. And the primary context for those relationships is in the membership of the local church. And so when we're experiencing hardship, when we're grieving, when we're at the lowest point of our lives, we need our brothers and sisters to rally around us and to, to remind us of the hope that we have of future resurrection and being with the Lord forever. Right, so theology is always practical if you do it right. right. What we believe is always meant to inform what we do. And our understanding of the second coming of Jesus gives us an opportunity to minister to one another in times of grief. And so in our, our passage this morning, Paul is explaining the nature of Jesus' future return in order to encourage and to comfort the Thessalonians, and by extension, us as well. Now, having read this passage, some of you may be wondering about the second judgment, or the, the battle of Armageddon, or the new heavens and the new earth, and, and all kinds of other things that, that we know go along with the second coming. Well, there are a lot of details that Paul doesn't mention here, and that's because that's really not the point of this particular passage. Paul's not looking to give us a complete account of when and how all of this stuff is going to happen. His point is that Jesus is coming back, and, and that all of those who have believed in Jesus are, are going to be just fine, whether they're alive at that time or whether they have already died. Of course, the crucial detail in, in all of this is that phrase, in Christ. Because only those who have a relationship with Jesus that is based on faith can have this hope. The unfortunate reality is that all of those who reject Christ in this life do not have this hope for the next life. They will be raised to life as well, but it will be a life that is characterized by judgment because of our rebellion against the God who's created us. And this is a, a sobering reality. It's a reality that should motivate us in our evangelism towards those who do not believe as we seek to explain who Jesus is and what he has done and call others to believe in him. It should cause us to take our corporate responsibility for, for church discipline seriously as we pursue professing believers who have gotten off the, of the right path. Or if you've not turned to Jesus for salvation, then this reality should give you pause. It should cause you to consider your sin against God. And consider the, the hope that he offers you through, by his grace through faith in Jesus. Right, the truth is that God offers us so much more than this world could ever give us. And he offers it not just for this life, but for the life to come as well. Everyone faces death sooner or later, but there is hope because Jesus has defeated death through his own life, death, and resurrection. And he offers that hope to anyone who will receive it. Now again, this doesn't mean that death for believers is inconsequential. Because again, when we lose a loved one, there is a hole in our life. And that hurts. And that's, that's uh, appropriate to be sad and to grieve, as we've already said. But because of Jesus, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. We celebrated at Advent just a couple of months ago, looking for that future return of Jesus when he will make all things right and he will wipe every tear away from our eyes. Death does not have the last word. 
And when Jesus returns, he will raise all of his people back to life. We'll be reunited together and we'll spend eternity together with the Lord. This is a hope that can keep us anchored in the midst of the darkest grief. And it gives us opportunities to minister to one another in those dark times. So this morning, as we have heard God's word, let's rejoice in the hope that we have because of Jesus. Let's pray together.